All right, good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us for hour number two of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony B. I just love to hear the crank it up in there. Um, we're going to start the second hour with an interview with South Carolina Senator Josh Kimbrell. He is a senator, of course, from Spartanburg and uh, one of the, the leaders of pro-life legislation down in the Senate and a lot of other conservative legisla- legislation. If you've ever watched some of the debate from the Senate floor, uh, you'll hear him from time to time taking uh, strong stands on issues that matter to a lot of us. So anyway, Senator, thanks for joining us today. wanted you to give us a little recap of the week. Well, good morning, Tony. Uh, you know, I- I'll be honest. I don't I feel like this is not the most productive week of the legislative session thus far. I do feel like the there's a lot of places where we're kind of at a stalemate, and I hope that we can break that logjam in the coming days on a range of issues, including certainly finding some common ground between the House and Senate on pro-life legislation, as you mentioned. And we're still trying to move uh, a crackdown on fentanyl forward. I, I, we didn't make as much progress on that this week as I would like. We're really trying to do something about the, uh, the drug addiction problem, especially with the open and forest southern border, which has certainly led to a spike of uh, fentanyl-related deaths and crimes in our state. And, uh, and certainly now we're also concerned and watching this uh, unfolding drama related to the Comptroller General having overstated the cash balance of the state by about $3 billion bucks. So it's an interesting time. I, you know, I'm still optimistic this session ends well, but right now it's been a, it's been a weird week, put it that way. I want to go back and focus on a couple of things that you mentioned, and let's start with the last one first. The comptroller overestimating the amount that is in the state treasury. How much was was the overestimation? How serious is that? And how does it affect what goes on in South Carolina? Well, I mean, it's, it's so for starters, it's at least three point two billion, maybe as much as four to five billion, or maybe more. I mean, we, we're still trying to get to the bottom of the number. Let me be really clear, as I've said in other interviews about this, this is not a budget. This is not reflective of the budget. This is talking about cash in the bank, right? So we talk about running a surplus of several billion dollars, which we have the last number of years. That is very much accurate. That's true, and that comes from the Department of Revenue. What the comptroller does is they're basically the guys that are counting the Department of the State who write the checks. And apparently, over about a 10-year period, the uh, comptroller general, Richard, Richard Ekstrom, uh, his office allowed there to be payments made to the institutions of higher learning, like Carolina, Clemson, MUSD, all this. And, and those payments totaled a little over $300 million a year that was actually not deducted from the state's checkbook. So when you look at the balance over a decade, it's at least $3 billion we've overstated the cash balance. Now, nobody stole the money. I'm not, nobody's suggesting that. It's not like the money got siphoned uh, right. off someplace. Right. It's just that it's an accounting issue that's pretty serious, and it, it could affect the state's credit rating. And ultimately, it's kind of stunning that it looks like there's some emerging evidence that the comptroller's office knew about this for years and didn't bother to tell anybody in the legislature, which is obviously a problem. Yeah. So, again, it's an, it's an accounting problem. They, they didn't account for money, and it's all money that went to Clemson through a particular program? Not just Clemson, institutions of higher learning. All okay, of okay, so all it, of them. It, it, it's not just Clemson. You're talking every – there's a there's a, uh, an allocation every year to these public universities by the legislature and through the state budget, and payments were made pursuant to those budgetary allocations. But then it's, it's just like if you uh, wrote a check, forgot to deduct it from your checkbook, right? Right. So the check went out, 
and the payments were paid, but it wasn't deducted from the cash balance. And they did this for about 10 years before anybody happened to catch that. And uh, then wow. apparently they've known about it for several years, and we're going to try to fix it quietly before anybody knew about it. And obviously that's not the right thing to do. So, uh, you know, mistakes happen. It's a heck of a mistake. But the worst problem here, like it usually is, is the attempt to not tell anybody about it. And you know, the legislature's over here being given annual reports, so is the governor, on what the cash balance is, and those are wrong. Yeah. Okay, let, let's talk a little bit about fentanyl. Um, you, know, you know, I thought this was going to be an easy lift. I, I went to a couple of the hearings in the subcommittee on uh, the laws that they were proposing to help South Carolina crack down on our own fentanyl problem, and I just felt like that I kind of got the sense that there's a lot of uh, agreement about what we needed to do. So what's the holdup? What, what has been the thing that didn't make things move as fast as you would have liked? Well, there's a debate over mens rea, and let me explain what that means. Criminal lawyers out there, they know what it means, but mens rea means a guilty mind or an evil mind. And basically what in criminal law what that means is you've got to be able to prove that somebody knew what they were doing and they intentionally were trying to break the law, right? In other words, it can't be they just didn't know any better. It's got to be proved that they knew what they were doing. And so, the, and I've been working with Senator Adams, who's a former law enforcement officer too, and others, trying to get the language right because it, it is an issue. So the, the bill's a good bill in that it cracks down on fentanyl distri- distribution. Anybody that's a drug dealer, uh, they're going to go to jail for 30 years in mandatory minimums on these things. So you got some Democrats who don't like the mandatory minimum sentence. That's a little bit of a hurdle to overcome. But then I also, as much as I have no problem cracking down on a fentanyl drug you know, dealer and, and user who knows what they're doing, unfortunately this fentanyl stuff is so prevalent everywhere now, in part because of the open southern border. You have college kids who may end up getting their hands on this stuff and not mean to, right? In other words, they go get a some kind of dessert somebody's laced to a fentanyl, they go give that to a buddy of theirs. The way the law is written right now, even if you didn't know what you were doing and you gave a brownie, for example, that had fentanyl in it to a friend of yours and that friend died, we're putting you in jail for 30 years as a trafficker. Well, that's not, I mean, obviously you won't do that to somebody who doesn't know what they're doing and is innocent as, as anything. We're trying to make sure we get the bill right to where we're prosecuting those who actually are knowingly committing these crimes and who are intentionally distributing drugs, not some innocent, hapless guy that know any better. And that's where the hang-up is. So let me ask you, does, don't, don't those decisions actually get made usually at the law enforcement level? I mean, people who look at individual cases, they can look at the evidence and discern whether someone had an intent uh, to, care, to distribute or if someone was just uh, passing something along that they didn't know anything about. So it's... It, it, are these guidelines for law enforcement to make sure that they make the right decision? Well, it's ultimately for what a court may challenge it, right? I mean, if you have, in criminal law in the United States, you have under the Fourth Amendment a protection against unreasonable search and seizure. You have due process protection. And if a piece of legislation affecting the criminal code doesn't have some element of betrayal in it, then oftentimes the court can find it unconstitutional strike it down. So it would be a big mistake for us to pass this thing through in a haste and then ultimately have it struck down by a court. So I think, I mean, I don't, look, I feel we're going to pass a sensible crackdown. Yeah. But we've also got to be sure that it's not immediately going to be enjoined by a court and struck down when somebody sues over it. We got to get that part right. Last question. I know uh, we we talked a little bit at the outset about uh, pro-life bills. Uh, The Senate last week 
passed the heartbeat bill. It's sort of an updated version uh, of the heartbeat bill that was originally struck down by the South Carolina Supreme Court. And then uh, the House has now passed the Human Life Protection Act, which heartbeat bill begins at six weeks of protection for babies in the womb. Um, Human Life Protection Act is at conception. And the, the, the buzz in Columbia or the discussion is that that's a two-track path that doesn't have a happy ending because the Senate is not going to be interested in starting with conception and the House is not going to be interested in protecting life from the heartbeat. So um, are you hearing any possibility of a path forward? I'll be honest. Right now, I feel like the situation as bad as last year. I find really hard to dislodge this. And, and what I have said, and this is where this is where people need to understand the nuance of the process a little bit. And some folks do know it and just are unwilling to attempt it. You, there's a parallel path you can take here. There are two pieces of legislation. Both are pro-life bills. Now, if I have to, if I have to tell you which one I think is stronger, Human Life Protection Act is the stronger of the two. I've always said that, and I still. And I've supported that bill. I also know where the numbers are in the Senate, and there's not any chance in the world we're going to take it, have it taken up with the certain makeup of the Senate and certain people who fight us every step of the way here. I don't see a pathway for that bill right now. That being said, what I've encouraged, and I don't know that I'm, I don't know that we're making good progress here. What I've encouraged is the House has already passed Human Life Protection Act, also passed the Heartbeat Bill, which we've also passed, and let's get something in effect. And I'm going to push for the Senate to take up the Human Life Protection Act. I, I just don't think we have the vote. And, and what I can't understand, it becomes a standoff where the House will say, well, the Senate ought to pass our version, and the Senate says, well, the House should pass ours. Here's what you come down to. Which one is actually possible, right? Which one's possible? I believe that, that you have a better chance of passing heartbeat in the House, even though it is weaker than the HLPA, than you have passing the HLPA in the Senate. And we ought to do something. This idea of, you know, we got to figure out which chamber's right, I, I think that's a bad, that doesn't end well. And it ends being a 20-week state with 24,000 abortions a year, which, by the way, is the highest number since the mid-1990s. We have now gone backwards. Everybody celebrated when Roe was overturned, and rightfully so. And yet, in this state at least, because of the state Supreme Court and decisions being made in the legislature, we've gone backwards. We've gone to more abortions at any point since the mid-90s. And under the Clinton administration, and that's not encouraging. It's very disappointing. And if we could at least get the heartbeat bill in place, we could drop those numbers by more than 60 percent, maybe even more than that. We'd stop being an abortion tourist state, and, and then let's fight to uh, do it to go back to conception after the midterm, after the 24 elections. I think certain people are going to lose, and I think you'll see some turnover in the Senate. And let's try again. But I think I think we get 80 percent of what we want now instead of nothing. And I'm afraid, though, that we're trending toward uh, toward nothing. Senator, it's always good to talk to you. I appreciate you giving us a call on Fridays and keeping us updated about what's going on down in Columbia, and I hope you and your family enjoy a great weekend together. Well, Doctor, thank you. I appreciate all you do. Okay, there's a brand-new study of masking and whether or not it does anything to prevent the spread of COVID or influenza or any of the airborne viruses. Uh, this study is out of the U.K. It's from Cochrane. Um, and um, it is, let's see, Cochrane is an international network with headquarters in the U.K., a registered not-for-profit organization and a member of the U.K. National Council for Volunteer, uh, Voluntary Organizations. It is for anyone interested in using high-quality information to make health decisions, whether you're a clinician, patient, uh, or carer, 
researcher, or policymaker, Cochrane Evidence provides a powerful tool to enhance your healthcare knowledge and decision making. So basically, um, they have supporters and members from 130 countries worldwide. Um, they are researchers, health professionals, patients, carers, people passionate about improving health outcomes for everyone. So they had 12 researchers go back and compile a lot of data that relates to mask wearing as to whether or not it's really effective in preventing the spread of illness when it comes to airborne viruses. Here's the, uh, the background. Viral epidemics or pandemics, acute respiratory infections pose a global threat. Examples are influenza uh, caused by H1N1, uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, and the coronavirus, which, of course, manifests itself um, in 2020. The, in, it's the corona disease, corona 20. Uh, uh, let's see if I can get this right. Coronavirus disease 2019 caused by the SARS-CoV-2 in 2019. So antiviral drugs, vaccines, but what about physical barriers? What about things like sophisticated medical mask compared to just simple surgical mask. And they looked at the data for all of this. Now, they spend a lot of time after they give you the objectives, the search methods, the selection criteria, the data collection analysis. Um, they, they, they talk a lot about how this is incomplete. They're, in other words, they're hedging. Now, most research studies will tell you what where the holes are. If they're legitimate, they're going to tell you what the weaknesses of the study are and the strengths of the study. But in this particular report, and I've read a lot of these because I've as a I was a EDD candidate at North Greenville University, still haven't done my dissertation, but uh, went through all the classes, did all the research. And what I discovered in doing reading a lot of research papers, is that they're pretty even-handed, as a rule, in describing how the methodology is good here, it could be better here, we need further testing in this area. Most, most research reports do that. Reading this report, it's almost like in every paragraph, because usually they'll put all that information at the very end. They'll have strengths and weaknesses of the report as a category. But in this report, they go out of their way in every paragraph to say, well, we're pretty confident about this, but there could be problems with it. There could be problems. And I think what that is is putting up a force field around the researchers so that they don't get beat up in the media and by other researchers because they dared question whether or not masks are effective and the conclusions they reached is not going to make the mask proponents happy. So just bear that in mind. So in one case, they compared medical, surgical mask compared to no mask at all. So here's, here's what they write. We included 12 trials, 10 cluster RCTs, which, uh, let me get back up here. RCTs are randomized control trials, and they're kind of the gold standard when it comes to uh, looking for data to compare if you're going to do comparative data. 
So they did cluster RCTs, and then and, and 10 of those included in the 12 trials, comparing medical surgical masks versus no mask to prevent the spread of viral respiratory illness. Wearing masks in the community probably makes little or no difference to the outcome of influenza-like illnesses, and then they list them all, compared to not wearing masks. So in other words, it, 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 wearing masks in the community makes little or no difference to the, to the outcome of laboratory-confined influenza. So whether or not you're talking about a natural airborne virus that's out there floating around that you could get, whether you wear a mask or not doesn't seem to make any difference, according to their research. If it's a lab control virus, something like COVID-19, something that we know um, now, it's the, the information is, is pretty overwhelming, the evidence, that this is something that was biologically engineered. And so if, if, if it's that or something like SARS or something like the influenza virus, mask wearing does little there's, there's evidence that there's almost no difference between people wearing a mask and people not wearing a mask in the community. Now, this is not in the medical field. This is just us out going to the grocery store. You know, I still see people, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe as much as 10% of the people that I see in a grocery store will still have on a mask, which doesn't bother me. I mean, I, if you feel better, about wearing a mask, if you believe that it's doing something to help you, um, I, I, there's no harm in it. Where the harm comes is when people come along and tell you things that are not true, based up by scientific, based by on scientific data. They come along and tell you, um, okay, you, you know, if you don't wear a mask, you're spreading the disease to other people. Well, this study says you're not you're not really protecting yourself, and you're not really protecting others. When you wear a mask. Now, there are other studies that say that that's not true, but more and more, the studies that use reputable methodology to come to conclusions about this are determining that mask wearing just isn't the the protectant that everybody says it is. Yes, sir. Went to the Social Security office yesterday. You're required. Didn't bring my mask, so they handed one to my wife yeah. and I, yeah. and we were told, put it on. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I know. There's yeah. still some places. I mean, it, uh, I run into that rarely, but um, it's there's still some places where mask wearing is mandatory. Um, and you know what? When somebody hands me a mask and tells me to put it on, I don't, I don't uh, fuss. I don't argue. I just put it on. I mean, it, because it's 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 just wearing a mask for a little while in an environment where you know they they want you to have it on. I, if they were telling me that I had to wear it, if it was a there's a difference between me agreeing to do something that I'm asked to do by a particular agency when the United States government or the local government comes along and says you have to put this mask on 24/7 in every environment, I'm not going to do that. Because it it's it's not like my life is in danger if I don't. I mean, I should be able to make that decision for myself based on the scientific information that's available, the best scientific information. Now, they compared it, and we'll get to Gene in just a minute. I know he, he's, a, he's our resident expert on this stuff. Now, when they compared it to N95 
P2 respirators compared to medical and surgical masks. So they, they did the same kind of methodology. They, they pulled a lot of information together from different studies and kind of put, looked at the best research and then they, they start making the excuses here pretty early in this section. Evidence is limited by imprecision uh, and heterogeneity for these subjective outcomes. The use of N95 P2 respirators compared to medical surgical masks probably makes little or no difference for the objective and more precise outcome of laboratory-confined influenza infection. Restricting pooling to healthcare workers, it made no difference to the overall findings. Harms were poorly measured and reported, but discomfort wearing medical surgical mask or N95 P2 respirators was mentioned in several studies. Um, so, in other words, let me let me boil that down for you. They compared the really good, sophisticated masks to a surgical mask that you whip out of a cardboard box and put it on, and there's not a significant difference in the amount of protection for you or someone else that's taking place between those two items. Gene, thanks for calling. Well, where do we start? Number one, these masks, when they are applied, are not used in an aseptic environmental setting. That's a big problem with, with the use of masks. You're, uh, with respect to any respiratory pathogen, such as RSV, influenza, the rhinoviruses, and corona, you are more likely to be infected, undergo what I would call an auto-infection process. That is, there is a contaminated surface, your hand touches it, and, and when we usually put our hands over our, uh, the part of our face by the mouth and the nose, and that's where the con uh, there's a contact uh, inhalation. That's the most efficient means of, of uh, transmission by these viruses. Yeah, there can be person-to-person -person aerosol transmission, provided one person uh, is expelling a high dose of infectious virus from their, their, their oral pharynx out into the atmosphere, and you happen to breathe it. Now, with respect to corona, the, uh, I, I've heard some uh, comments that this virus can survive three to five days uh, um, with infectivity on top of, of uh, inanimate surfaces, and that's absolutely impossible for a, uh, for a membrane envelope viruses. Uh, in, the, uh, in uh, the ambient atmosphere, the envelopes of these viruses will denature quite rapidly, and when that occurs, they lose infectivity. So I'm not a proponent of, of mask use unless you're using it in, a, in an aseptic yeah. environmental setting to limit person-to-person uh, 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 -person transmission in an aseptic setting. Yeah, in other words, yeah, yeah, in other words, people in a hospital that are going in and out of patient rooms um, or whatever they're doing, medical health care workers in that environment, it's probably a good thing. But people well, but they, even there, Tony, may, may I interject? Even please. there, when they go from room to room, the masks have to be discarded right. and aseptically uh, um, uh, removed. And yep. a, another person has to come in and, and aseptically apply a new mask onto the, uh, uh, the attendant. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Gene. I appreciate the call. Well, the difference between that what Gene's talking about, and you riding down the road with a mask hanging off your rearview mirror, and then you whip it off and put it on when you go inside somewhere. I mean, do we let's let's apply 
a little bit of common sense instead of worrying about all the research data. Because you you got to know that that's not working real well, right? I mean, it's hanging from the rearview mirror. It's even worse if you fish it out of a pocket of your coat that you wore the last time. And I've done this before. I mean, I, you have to have one on. So I just, you know, okay, which coat did I wear? Oh, yeah, there it is. I'd whip that thing out, stick it in my pocket, maybe spray a little antiseptic on it, you know, maybe some Febreze, you know, just so, so it doesn't cause me to pass out when I put the thing on. <laughs> and then I've got it. If somebody tells me to put a mask on, I've, I've, I've got one. Or the worst case scenario is pulling it out of the infamous console in your car or truck. You know, it's been in there for a couple of days. You hadn't really thought about it. You know, there's a there's a lifesaver stuck to the outside of it, or 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 maybe you know you've you've got some other stuff in there that you clean your glasses with, and it's leaked out in there. Oh, well, you just kind of clean that thing off, put it on, and think that you're doing anything to protect yourself or anybody. Um, that's delusional. Okay. Um, all right. There's an interesting story today at National Review. And it's by Nate Hokum, uh, excuse me, Hokeman. Uh, and he's talking about the New York Times. The New York Times recently, and for some reason, have been running stories about transgender issues that actually have some real science and truth behind them. And when you put real science and truth behind the transgender movement, and you start talking about, well, it may not be the best idea to give puberty blockers uh, to preteens. It may not be the best idea to put uh, teenage girls into binders uh, to, you know, stunt their breast development. It might not be the best idea to have um, all this going on with minors and certainly not surgery. So the New York Times has kind of been it, it's, it'll run stories occasionally that is sort of moving in that direction. And a lot of people are stunned by that. And the people that are stunned by it most are the progressives who have depended on the New York Times to be their mouthpiece for the last 20 years. And so a lot of people got upset when the Times wrote a big front-page story about the transgender movement that actually had a lot of facts involved in it. Uh, and so Hockman writes, Yesterday I wrote about an open letter now signed by upwards of a 1,000 New York Times contributors. Now, this is these are people that do op-eds. You know, you can be a contributor if you've ever written an op-ed for the New York Times. Ben Shapiro wrote an op-ed on the death of Rush Limbaugh. They got published in the New York Times, but you, you're not going to read him in there all the time. But this is legitimately a thousand people who have contributed in some way to the editorial page. And in this letter, they accuse the New York Times of having a right wing editorial bias. I mean, that is that is laughable. That tells me that these people, for for it to be a right-wing bias, that means that the New York Times actually said something that didn't support the progressive agenda. And that's got all these people falling out of their tree. Um, here's and, and Now, the Times executive editor, Joe Kahn, 
wrote in, in a letter, it is not unusual for outside groups to critique our coverage or to rally supporters to seek influence to influence our journalism. In this case, however, members of our staff and contributors to the Times joined the effort. Their protest letter included direct attacks on several of our colleagues, singling them out by name. Participation in such a campaign is against the letter and spirit of our ethics policy. That policy prohibits our journalists from aligning themselves with advocacy groups and joining protest actions on matters of public policy. We also have a clear policy prohibiting Times journalists from attacking one another's journalism publicly or signaling their support for such attacks. Now, this is, this is pretty amazing. This is the New York Times having to defend themselves against the people that keep the New York Times in business. The progressives who think that the New York Times is their mouthpiece. And boy, when it turns out that they decide to show a little bit of the other side of a debate, people just absolutely lose their ever-loving minds. Khan went on to defend his paper's allegedly anti-trans reporting on the merits, arguing that our coverage of transgender issues, including the specific pieces singled out for the attack, is important, deeply reported, and, sensitive, and sensitively written. In conclusion, he fired another warning shot. We do not welcome and we will not tolerate participation of Times journalists in protests organized by advocacy groups or attacks on colleagues on social media and other public forums. He actually explained, he said, hey, imagine this, the editor of the Times coming out and saying, we're in the news business, not in the advocacy business. People in the advocacy business, like GLAD, have agendas that they are trying to get the news to reflect. And that's not our job. It may be their job to do that, but our job is to filter through that and bring you the truth. And I'm thinking to myself, well, welcome to the party, pal. Welcome to the world. Welcome to the place where most Americans are. They would like to just simply know the truth. Now, please don't think the Times has had some kind of awakening. Don't think this is some kind of revival that's taking place over at the Times, a revival to take them back to the truth. Uh, I don't believe that's true for a minute. The Times is still populated by people who disdain conservative values that don't like the fact that that there are people walking around who actually take their religious beliefs seriously. I mean, so just because the Times is beginning to catch up with the science on transgender issues and to fairly report some of that science. Uh, now, I mean, in, you know, Europe has walked away big time from transgender issues. They're beginning to discover that there's more harm than good coming out of the transgender movement. Um, that hasn't happened in the United States to the extent that it's happening in Europe. And so now that the New York Times is beginning to say, well, we're looking at the same reports, we've got the data, and it looks the same, so we need to report this. We're, we're going to be careful because we know what likely is going to happen. What's going to happen? Well, what happened is going to happen. And it's actually pretty rich, honestly, when the people who have praised and propped up the Times for – and ignoring 
or becoming derisive when it comes to conservative stories and conservative thought processes, now all of a sudden that they're actually printing something that they can't ignore because of the evidence and everybody's going crazy. But I'll say this, kudos to the editor for coming out and saying we're not going to put up with internal criticism of our journalist and we're not going to change our reporting based on the demands of advocacy groups. If they mean that, that's great. Uh, but I'm very, very suspicious. I, I just don't think we're going to see that big of a difference coming from the New York Times. Maybe on this issue, uh, but it's only because the weight of the evidence is forcing them to do so. Last segment today. Uh, today is a, is a sad anniversary and it leads to somebody that I'm missing a lot, and you probably figured it out by now. Uh, Rush Limbaugh passed away two years ago today, and Jack Butler has written just a, a stirring and very factual tribute to Rush Limbaugh at National Review, and I just want to read it to you. I think this is the best way that I could honor Rush Limbaugh today. I mean, without Rush Limbaugh, there is no Dr. Tony Beam show um, without Rush Limbaugh, I don't know that we ever would have had the explosion of podcasting that's taken place. Um, Rush Limbaugh proved to the world that talk radio had a place and that it was the place of conservative thought because they tried all kind of liberal alternatives to Rush Limbaugh and none of them prospered. I mean, they just... There was actually a liberal talk network for a while that tried to compete, just a, a host. I mean, they had, to run, they had to run out a bunch of people to try to compete with Rush, and it, it all came to nothing. So here's Jack Butler's piece today at National Review. Today marks two years since the death of Rush Limbaugh. The day is burned into my memory, and mine too. I may stop and... <laughs> comment a little bit here. Not only was it Ash Wednesday that year, it was also the day a much-loved member of my extended family passed away. Conservatism, to say nothing of talk radio, has had a giant rush-shaped hole in it ever since. I was a rush listener from the beginning of my time as a politically aware individual and probably before. When I appeared on political beats to discuss electric, the electric light orchestra, I described how, when I was younger, I spent a lot of time driving with my dad to and from track meets, friends' houses, family events. We passed our time on such trips, talking, of course, but in the background would always be either one of my, of any number of classic rock CDs in his car, from which came my love of ELO and my music taste more generally, or whatever talk radio was on, Ideally, Rush, which is how I began forming my political views. When Rush wasn't on in the car, he was on in the house, playing through a too-old stereo that preserved the AM radio static crackle just below his um, mellifluous words. Is that the word? How do you pronounce that word? M-E-L-L-I-F-L. Anyway. Mellifluous. It, it means that they sound really nice, put it that way. Listening to Rush was a completely clear feed seemed wrong somehow. In other words, you wanted the crackle in the background is what he's saying. Now, most of the time when I listened to Rush, um, it was clear as a bell. I was riding around listening to him in my car. And yeah, it started out on AM radio, but it was always strong in this area. 
the lifelong love of Rush struck me through uh, through my time at Hillsdale College, which proudly advertised on Rush's show. During the school year, I would look forward to the end of exams and other trips home for all the obvious reasons, but also because of the uh, award that awaited me on my drive, three to four hours depending on how fast I went, and I sometimes went too fast. If the timing worked out, I could leave campus right around noon just in time for Rush's show with his voice to keep me company, three hours would fly by. The trip would be almost over by the time I had to say goodbye. What was it about the show that we, we ditto heads, as Rush lovingly called his fans, found so entertaining? Reflecting on all the hours that I listened, I must note how good he was in front of the microphone. No one has ever done talk radio better, and I don't think anyone ever will again. <coughs> Excuse me, folks. I'm sorry. I've got one of these cough tickles. Ugh, I hate it when that happens and I'm trying to do radio. Um, Rush simply owned the format, one that wouldn't have existed without the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine. Everyone who came after him owes something to him, in many cases directly. Just to hear the opening baseline of My City Was Gone by the Pretenders, to behold Rush's boast that his talent was on loan from God and that he was coming to us, with half his brain tied behind his back just to make it fair, to experience his loving call-outs to boast nerdly <clears throat> and his rifling through papers with his formerly nicotine-stained fingers, all of this was to be in the presence of a master of his craft. But Rush was more than an entertainer. He was a guide through the politics of the day. When he first emerged, he spoke to an audience that was already there, but that in the early post-Reagan days didn't quite have a champion. His conservatism, delivered plainly yet intelligently, was that of, a, of millions throughout the country. They were the people Pat Buchanan called conservatives of the heart, who didn't read Adam Smith or Edmund Burke, but came from the same schoolyards and the same playgrounds and towns as we come from and share our beliefs and convictions <clears throat> our hopes and our dreams. Rush should be applauded for not just speaking to, but also speaking for conservatives of the heart. It was not for nothing that National Review and Donald Trump alike recognized his greatness. Recently, going through some old effects in my parents' house, I discovered a copy of The Way Things Ought to Be. I can tell you right now where my copy of that book is. I keep it uh, where I can reach it. It's third shelf in the library at our home. And I have another copy in my office. Rush's first book. Reading through it, I was struck by how recognizable and relevant the conservatism it presented was. I was also struck by the hope present in it. 1992 was a dark time for conservatives who believed that Bill Clinton had just bamboozled Americans into voting for him. Even then, though, Rush was optimistic, believing that America was on the brink of a conservative restoration. The final chapter, the last word, we are winning. Two years later, he was proven right. We don't have Rush with us today, but those of us who cherished our time with him ought to carry forth his spirit in this and in whatever other respects we can manage. I got to tell you, um, it, you know, from time to time, I, I just want to quit. <laughs> I, I wish I, I didn't have to admit that because I wish it wasn't true, but... It's it's not easy being in a political environment, uh, and it's certainly not easy trying to bring the light of the truth of God's Word to bear 
on issues of the day. And there are times when, you know, I, I just want to stop going to Columbia because it can be very frustrating, as Senator Kimbrell spoke about today, um, in the way that even sometimes conservatives fail to work together the way that we should for whatever reason. Uh, it can be very frustrating because of what you feel like can't be accomplished, even though you feel like you, you're getting some things done. You know, Trey Gowdy came home from Washington and I'll never forget standing, I think we were in a parking lot over in Spartanburg, and I said, Trey, why would you walk away when you're just now, your voice is beginning to resonate in D.C.? Um, and he said very, very succinctly, he said, I, I can't be in an environment where at the end of the day I don't feel like I've accomplished anything. I want to come back and work in an environment where at the end of the day I can feel like that something happened, that I made a difference. And there's that feeling sometimes when you work in the arena of public affairs and politics and culture and so forth. But here's the thing. When I get those feelings, I, I think about two things. I think about the calling that I believe that God has put on my life to respond to, to be obedient. And I also think about Rush Limbaugh because Rush Limbaugh was eternally optimistic that the truth and that the values that we all share are gonna win out in the end. And I just think it's good to be reminded of that today before we head into the weekend. God bless you, I hope you have a great weekend and I'll see you Monday morning at seven o'clock. Rest in peace, Rush Limbaugh.